0: If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17. Over the last few weeks, we have been working our way through the story of Elijah and we are coming to the final section of chapter 17 this morning and we are beginning at chapter 17 verse 17 to give you a little of the context as you're turning there. Elijah has been called by God. We don't know much about Elijah's background, what he did for a living. Was he married? Does he have a family? But we know he comes from what Old Testament scholars consider to be a rather small, insignificant village or town called Tishp. And so Elijah, the Tishbite, called of God to challenge Ahab the king. And we saw that in the first week as Ahab was a bit of a brutal dictator, to say the least. And then God took him away to a quiet place and began to work in the life of Elijah, preparing him for the ministry to come. And then last Sunday morning, we noticed that he went to a place called Zarephath. And there he met a widow and her son, and so that gives you the context of our study this morning. In verse seventeen we read Some time later the son of the woman who owned the house became ill, and he grew worse, and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my son, of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son. Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, laid him on his bed, and then he cried out to the Lord, "'O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die?' And then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Over these last few weeks, as we have looked at the journey of Elijah coming from, as we said moments ago, an unknown little village, Elijah has come through some significant experiences in his walk with God. He has come across unexpected, unanticipated change, change he did not seek, did not pray for, and we have been learning a great deal over these last few Sundays together. And on our first Sunday, we learned that life is often about the 10% of what happens to us, and 90% of how we respond to it, and we've certainly seen that over the last two Sundays. We also noticed at the end of our first study together, the patience which is needed to cultivate character takes time. Quiet-spoken wisdom and seasoned maturity does not come instantly. The insightful perspective, which adds depth to our discussion and decisions, comes with integrity generosity, determination, and humility. Such maturity only comes as a direct result of time alone with God. And we're going to see some of those major themes continue to the end of the chapter today. And amidst the disappointment and the pain, you can trust in the invincibility of God's grace, and we saw that last week. We also noted that when God moves you to the place where you least expect to be, you can trust in the invincibility of God's grace. And when you crawl out of the crucible only to discover you're being tested again, you can trust in the invincibility of God's grace. We said last Sunday morning that the name Zarephath, the place where Elijah was now living, that it seemed as if he had come from one furnace type crucible to another to another and in fact that's exactly what's going to happen again this morning and many of us can identify with that in our own christian experience because it seems that from time to time we go through a season when God brings to us extensive training as he fashions and shapes us, as Claire mentioned earlier in her prayer, and then he brings another period of intense training. And just when we think we've got over that period of testing, he puts us in another crucible of circumstance that can at times be overwhelming, and then another. And that theme of moving from one crucible of testing moving to another, we're going to pick up in this final section of the chapter this morning. And yet, Elijah is not the same man as he was some three and a half or four years ago. When God calls, he equips. And when he equips, he enables. And in that process, he begins to work in us and change us, heart and mind and soul. And Elijah has grown in his faith. He has matured in his absolute trust in the invincibility of God's grace. And so as we come to this final section in chapter 17, Elijah is not the same man he was those years ago when God first called him. And he is remembered in the midst of all of the extensive training, intense testing, he remembers the faithfulness of God above all things. And so as the passage develops this morning, we're reminded of the widow of Zarephath. We know, of course, a little about her son, and as the passage opens up, we notice that the son contracts an illness that is so devastating, her son dies. There are few experiences in life that are as debilitating, as mind-numbingly painful as the death of a child. And this widow's sense of grief and loss is so acute, so overwhelming. She does what so many others have done and what we know to be true in her own experience when something challenging, something awful, something that leaves us crippled and debilitating emotionally, we tend naturally to blame someone else. We look for someone or something to blame, and that's exactly what happens with the widow of Zarephath. Notice from verse 17 and into 18. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse, finally stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, "Why? what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? And so she blames Elijah. Not only does she blame Elijah, she then begins to blame God. And we understand that in the midst of this dreadful grief, sorrow, sense of bereft, bereaved from the love of her son, we understand why she's lashing out at Elijah. And yet, as you read the passage, you're reminded of last Sunday morning, the earlier passage, when Elijah provides for this lady and her son oil and flour day after day after day. And in the back of our minds, we want to say, hold on a second, don't you remember how God has looked after you recently? Don't you remember how he's answered your prayers each day and provided for you? And yet, our heart goes out to this lady because we know that this is not the moment for rational discourse, is it? It's not a moment for logic. She is grieving. Her heart is breaking. And so here is this lady seeking to blame Elijah. And no wonder, as she stands there alone with the limp, lifeless body of her son in her arms. And how does Elijah respond? Remember we said earlier in week one, That life is 10% of what happens to us and 90% of how we respond. And does Elijah begin that rational conversation? No. Does he begin with logic, explanation? No. Does he begin with, now hold on and let me explain? No. He realizes, like so many of us, that in that moment of painful, acute grief that is overwhelming, mind-numbingly awful, there's not a lot of room for words or explanation. If you have gone through such an experience or know someone in your family or someone in your place of work, their greatest need in a moment like that is for your comforting presence usually not words, usually not explanation, but to be there, to grieve with them, to empathize and extend sympathy. What does Elijah do? He simply reaches out and says, Give me your son. He knows no words will satisfy her grief. No words can soothe her stricken spirit. There is no point trying rational discourse. And Elijah knows from his own experience that God is moving him into another experience that is painful and difficult. Given where he's been, he knows what's about to happen. And Elijah, like us, from time to time, find ourselves caught in the jaws of a vice if you've ever visited a workshop you will see on the workbench sometimes one sometimes more than one vice and the craftsman puts in that vice a project he's working on and the vice has tightened to hold it still while he goes to work to shape and fashion the project till he gets it absolutely right that will answer his needs And sometimes we feel like that, do we not? God has us right there in a vice... And he's tightening that vice and he's working away and peering away. And then he tightens it again and then he turns it over and he tightens it again. And this time it becomes more severe and more severe. And there are moments when we find ourselves like that. We cry out and say, Father, what are you doing? I don't understand. Why are you tightening it even more? Surely what you've done already is enough. And here is God sovereignly, providentially tightening the vice in the life of Elijah. And once again, we see this period of extensive training, intense testing, as he goes further and further into the life of Elijah. And Elijah stands there with this young man in his arms, is silent, silent, and quietly walks up the stairs and i imagine to his room at the back of the building elijah doesn't waver for a second stands tall and silent in the shadow of god grounded in faith confident in the invincibility of god's grace displaying remarkable gentleness and humility in the midst of overwhelming pain Doesn't question God in front of the lady. He doesn't fall apart at the seams. Doesn't lose control. Doesn't argue. With simple, quiet compassion. Give me your son. And then he walks off up to the back bedroom in the house. The widow, without question or hesitation, hands over her son. And Elijah goes... To that sacred place. A place where he has spent many hours speaking to God. A place that is for him a sanctuary. A place where he engages the presence of God. A place where he pours out his heart. Moments ago with the widow he was silent, gentle, said nothing. But here alone in the presence of God, that's the time for questions. That's the time for uncertainty. That's the time to cry out, Lord, what are you doing? I thought over these last three years or four years, I've been walking closely with you. I've sought to serve you. I've done all that I possibly could. And now you are doing this. Lord, what on earth are you doing? Explain to me. Show me. Help me to understand. I imagine he pours out all of this in his mind and in his heart. But the principle undergirding all of this is clear. Elijah is modeling for us that old phrase. How often have we looked at it in the past? He is doing the natural things spiritually and the spiritual things naturally. Let me say it again, and if you're taking notes this morning, either here in the sanctuary or watching from home, Elijah is doing the natural things spiritually. Give me your son. He's extending empathy and sympathy. He's wanting to do everything he possibly can. It's his natural instinct, and he's doing those things spiritually. And then he's doing the spiritual things naturally. He knows that prayer will help. He knows that he can intercede. He's trusting in the invincibility of God's grace. And that's exactly what's happening here. And he takes this wee boy, begins to pray for him, and call on God to answer his prayers. Now hold that picture in your mind. And let me pause for a second right almost at the climax of the story and journey with me over here for a second. And let me talk about prayer for a moment or two. Sometimes we're tempted to think that when we engage God in heartfelt prayer, it's a little like going out to a rather exclusive restaurant and we sit down And our guest at the other end of the table is God himself. And you've been looking forward to this time together. Just the two of you. And as you sit down, you have almost casual chit-chat. And while you're talking, the waiter arrives, leaves you with menus, goes away. And of course, you can't wait to talk and you're pouring out all of your thoughts questions. The waiter comes back. Are you ready to order? Sorry, give us a couple of minutes. We've been so busy chatting. Waiter goes away, comes back a third time. Are you ready to order? Yeah, let's order. Order something to drink. Meal. Waiter leaves. And like any good meal, the longer the meal, the deeper the conversation becomes. The waiter arrives. Gives you your meal, asks if there's anything else he can do, and you detect that the vegetables are a little cold. You ask, could he warm them up a little? The waiter goes off to do that, comes back a few minutes later. You're so busy chatting, you hardly notice them. He puts them down and leaves. And you say, oh, sorry, excuse me, can you get us some more water when you have a minute? Of course. And the waiter then leaves. By the time it comes for dessert... You've talked about everything you're going through in your life as an individual, as a family. You've talked about the challenges and difficulties at work, the disappointments that you've faced. You've reflected a little in the last 14 months on how COVID has affected your life. And then you've begun to look forward and think about the next three or four months ahead. And by the time dessert comes, that's exactly where you are. But... What if, in our prayers, the person on the other side of the table is self? And all you have been doing is talking about your own hopes and dreams, your own desires, the things that matter most to you. And it turns out that you've treated God like the waiter, someone who enters into the conversation occasionally as you have been busy reflecting your own thoughts to yourself. You've dismissed him at times, asked for his help at other times. He stepped forward to serve your need. But in reality, you haven't spoken much to him, but you've spoken to yourself. Prayer is predicated on Relationship. Prayer is essentially about your walk with God. And when Elijah begins to pour out his heart and mind and soul, he knows he can be candid. He knows he can be honest. He knows he can pour out every question and fear while he is there alone with god because for the past four years they have grown and grown and grown in their relationship together and elijah would never treat him as a subconscious reflector of his own thinking would never dismiss him after he's received an answer to his needs or call him again when he wants a little something But there is a deep abiding, refreshing, re-energizing, renewing intimacy in moments of real prayer. And in the midst of Elijah's prayer, there is urgency, of course. But no panic, no rush, no fear, no doubts. Because Elijah understood what happens when we pray. Allow me this morning to share with you a couple of verses from one of my favorite psalms. We heard some of it being reflected, in fact, in our prelude this morning from Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That's prayer. Resting in the shadow of the Almighty. That's exactly what Elijah is doing right here. He's resting. Resting in that sacred place. Resting in the invincibility of God's sovereign purposes and grace. And can you imagine that moment when life returns to this young man? There's no words to describe what takes place. Can you imagine the widow's responds when she hears two steps, two sets of footprints rather, coming down the stairs and she sees her son alive. Once again, it's not a time for words. It's a time for thankfulness. It's a time for the heart to immediately express gratitude It's a time when you begin to say, Father, thank you for your goodness and your love and your grace and the invincible nature of that grace. And Elijah hands over her son and then steps back into the shadows in order for mother and son to appreciate all that God has done in their midst. What a moment. For a moment. And somehow we are tempted when we go through days like that. To wish for immediate answers. When a relationship we are in. Brothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, son, daughter. When that relationship ruptures and turns sour and withers. And as blighted, we want to turn to the how-to manual. We want a book that says when relationships get difficult, when a friend betrays you, when you're disappointed, follow steps one, two, three, and four. And if it's a real emergency, pay attention to steps five and six. When grief overwhelms us, we want to turn to such a manual. When things don't work out, In our working environment, and the contract we worked six months on falls at the last moment, and our small business is facing closure. We want such a manual. We want steps one, two, three, and four. And when the scripture speaks to us, it reminds us: it's impossible to have a manual to to explain. Every single circumstance, no manual is big enough. And yet we have a God who is exactly sufficient for our every need. And we can trust him regardless of the pain, regardless of how intense it is. No matter how acute and overwhelmingly, mind-numbingly sad and grief-stricken we are, we can trust him in the midst of it. That's what's going on in this passage. We can trust in the invincibility of his grace. Look again. He who dwells not wanders in and out, treating God like the waiter, excuse me, when you have a moment, but he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. That's exactly what's happening here. And you may be saying, Richard, I hear what you're saying. I appreciate all you've been saying and thank you for the illustration on prayer. I needed to hear that and I needed to be challenged about my prayer life. But Richard, please understand this. I am not Elijah. I don't have that kind of faith. I couldn't possibly be that sort of person. It simply is not me. If that's been your thoughts this morning, allow me, in conclusion, to push back ever so gently and remind you of an incident which took place last month, just under a month ago, April the 7th, in Rock Hill, here in South Carolina. Six people were shot and died. Two of them children. They had been visiting grandparents. Doctor and Mrs. Barbara Leslie. Outstanding Christian people. And their life to end in such a horrific manner is hard to begin to even get your mind around. And several days later, at a service of remembrance, when the entire community gathered together, Chris, the granddaughter of the Leslies, read a letter that her grandmother had written to her only a couple of weeks before. And it reads like this. You were created by God for a purpose with gifts and talents no one in this universe will ever have. You're one of those people who are destined to have an impact on the world. God knows just how, who he created you to be. He has his best for you in this life, all mapped out. It will bring you joy, fulfillment, and happiness. You are a blessing You are a gift. You are a deeply, excuse me, you are deeply and unconditionally loved. I'm so blessed to be your nana. Please don't give in to the temptation to believe that somehow your life doesn't impact others. Who we are is so much more important than anything we will ever do. And who we are will impact and influence family and friends. We live in a generation who listens with their eyes, who watches with their heart. Is this Christian faith real, authentic, and credible? Is it worth following? And folks are looking at you. And as you move into this next week, please remember how we respond to the circumstances of our life not only impacts us, but it impacts those around us unexpected, unanticipated change, yes, but we absolutely can trust in the invincibility of God's grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture this morning. Thank you that it speaks into our lives, enable us, please, as we leave this sacred place, this place of worship, to remember all that you have taught us this morning, and above all things, help us to hold on to the truth that we can trust in the invincibility of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.